Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a scathing report coming out saying the Governor General isn't necessarily who we thought she was. How will Canada and U.S. relations be under the new administration, especially with on day one killing the Keystone Pipeline? With online learning, it seems it's more than the kids that are jumping into the classroom and the pets. seems that the parents are voicing their concern. And is the Keystone Pipeline dead? Some are still hopeful, even though the president says it is. It's coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Some thought the U.S. election was a hoax. Well, Biden is now in and Trump is now out. Unless it's all a mirage. It seems pretty realistic to me, though. This show? Oh, I'm not so sure. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Am I fighting an uphill battle here? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Uh, commentary waiting for you on uh, Facebook and Twitter. You can uh, hear the podcast edition of that. would love to hear from you. Uh, to start things off, obviously, uh, all eyes. It was nice to do a show yesterday that wasn't all about COVID-19. Uh, my goodness, I think it was pretty much mostly the U.S. election. I, I guess it would be. I don't think we mentioned COVID at all, other than in relation to what perhaps President Biden must have said. Uh, that was refreshing. So uh, we will continue, obviously, to give you the updates on COVID-19 as they come in and more information on vaccines and such, but uh, also uh, the fallout and what is uh, next for U.S. President Biden uh, as they move forward. On that note, uh, it's been well known that uh, usually one of the first calls that uh, the U.S. President makes is to the Canadian Prime Minister, and it looks, that is the, looks like that is the case today. For an update on all of this, let's bring in Mercedes Stevenson, our Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global National, and is with us now. Mercedes, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Yeah, another uh, busy day here in Ottawa with that breaking news on the Governor General. That is bizarre. Uh, and again, like you say, the plate is already full. So what can you tell us? What do you know about this? I hear it scathing. Yeah, so I can tell you this is the independent report into allegations of workplace harassment uh, that was commissioned a while back after people said that uh, they were bullied, they were being essentially reduced to tears, that Rideau Hall had gone to a place where people loved to work, where they dreaded coming to work, uh, and people laid a lot of the blame for that uh, in the stories that were in the media at the feet of Governor General Judy Payet. So there was this independent review brought in, and what I'm hearing from multiple sources is that the contents of it are, are absolutely scathing, and in fact that it's so bad that uh, those sources do not believe Payette will be able to stay in her job and that she will be presented with a choice between resigning or the Prime Minister could take the extraordinary step of going to the Queen to have her removed from the position. Are those the only two options uh, that we have here or that the, the prime minister has either a resignation or I guess from there it goes to the queen? Yes, that's correct, because the governor general is appointed by the prime minister, uh, but she represents the sovereign. And while I wouldn't want to uh, pretend to get into the constitutional <laughs> deep mm. tunnels of exactly how that could work, what I'm hearing from my sources is that there are, there are two choices. 
she resigns uh, or she steps down. And I think the fact that the report has been leaked to the media tells you something about the direction the government is trying to push this in. Uh, What do we know about the relationship between the prime minister and the governor general of late? Uh, I'm told that it's been functional up until around the throne speech, but it's been strained and that after what he saw in this report, um, he was quite upset and that that's when the decision was taken, that there would be two options here, but that essentially they believe um, she has to go. So, you know, it it functions in terms of she's still doing her job as the sovereign, um, but this is not a prime minister who is happy with the appointment that he made to governor general. Uh, And as one source said to me, great on paper, not great in reality. So uh, it looks like it's inevitable that she is on her way out. If that is the case, what happens now with the new GG? Well, basically, they would start a process to look into the next GG with uh, suggestions. They do interviews, and the prime minister would select a new governor general. Uh, I suspect that they will be doing a lot more due diligence on the next governor general, because had they done it with this one, they would have discovered uh, there had been allegations uh, about concerns around workplace behavior in the past. Um, and they basically didn't look into any of that uh, or were surprised when it popped up. So I think there might have been a lesson learned there on being very careful in vetting who's appointed to a position that, while it is largely ceremonial, is very important to the public and very important to the way that, that our government works. And uh, there were a lot of things that simply have not been done the same way under Payette or have been vastly behind schedule, whether it's appointments or volunteer uh, recognition or presentation of awards. And there's been a lot of frustration from a lot of charitable groups about that, too. Uh, so they can't afford to have somebody else in that position who is not well suited to it. Uh, last question on this. What's the buzz in Ottawa regarding this? Um, is surprise? No, no surprise. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Based on what we were hearing from people who had worked at Rideau Hall, no surprise. Um, based on stories that I've heard personally from RCMP of Work Protective Detail with uh, the Governor General, no surprise. Um, there was an unwillingness to talk about this for a long time because people didn't want to be seen as disloyal to the Crown, essentially. But it just got so bad, these sources say, that they started to come out uh, and go public, and people were expecting that the report would likely find verification of those allegations. We don't know precisely what's in the report. Uh, all we know is that it's it's scathing and it's bad enough that um, the people who are familiar with the contents don't think she can stay in her job. Hmm. All right, let's move on. Uh, in regard to the U.S. election and President Biden, uh, understandably, uh, first call made, although I don't think this was done last time. I don't think Trump was the first one. Uh, the first one he called was the prime minister. But obviously, Biden, uh, first call going out to uh, the prime minister. Lots to talk about there in regard to uh, the topics they will talk about. Where does the, uh, the Keystone Pipeline land in all of this? Is it done? Is that it? I... I... <laughs> I expect it's likely done, unless there was some sort of court challenge in the U.S. um, that changed that or forced a review. This was an election promise that Joe Biden made, and it was a big enough deal to him that he did it on day one. Uh, The likelihood that he is going to listen to Canada's arguments about any of that is about zero. There might be a a way to do it in the U.S. domestically that forces a review uh, through some sort of a mechanism in the courts there. But politically, uh, this is, I mean, take a look at Joe Biden's cabinet. Everybody who he supported was anti-Keystone. Why would he approve Keystone if everyone around him is an avowed Keystone opponent? It just doesn't add up. Uh, so it's it's certainly very disappointing for Alberta. I'm from Alberta. I understand that disappointment. But uh, realistically, it was not going to happen. 
And the other thing that the Trudeau government probably could have done differently was not have made such a big deal before Christmas about how hard they were going to fight with this, only when the day got turned down to say, well, you know, it's his decision. Uh, I think it's a little bit of that hypocrisy on the communications front um, that is really sort of ruffling even more feathers, although obviously there's very real jobs that were attached to this pipeline. So where does that leave the prime minister and his position? Some say uh, it it may be a blessing in disguise for him because it's a battle he doesn't have to fight. That being said, uh, he certainly has to make it appear like he's defending Canada's interests here in a pipeline he did approve. Uh, I mean, yes and no. Um, I reported last night that exactly what you said there, that that really this does them a favor. Um, If they were going to fight it, he would have used that language. He hasn't used that language. He said, uh, we're disappointed. We understand. We accept. Same language the foreign minister has used. None of that suggests to me they're going to go back on this. Will they likely raise it in the first call and say we are disappointed about Keystone? Yes. Uh, Are they going to launch a whole campaign saying reconsider Keystone? No, you're not going to see that. And where does this leave Alberta? Obviously, there, it, it's uh, it's uh, an interesting uh, uh, turn of events when lots of people are celebrating Biden's victory, and Jason Kenney is 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 obviously pretty cranky with them and and threatening legal action. You know, I, I think that um, you'll see them continue to say they're backing Key, not the Keystone XL, but they are backing Trans Mountain. And, it puts that much pressure on the government for Trans Mountain to make it happen. Uh, there is still oil going from Alberta to the United States through existing pipelines, uh, but you may also see that pick up in oil by rail. Uh, for Alberta, I think this just feels like another kick when they're already down, and, and that's very tough for that province to take. So over and above Keystone, what is on the agenda of that first phone call? We'll, we'll, you know, There's obviously a long list of, of uh, items there that have been re- uh, reversed from the uh, Trump administration. What are the top five or so that Canada will be interested in? Uh, well, I would say certainly co- uh, COVID is going to be the top of the list. And that means discussions about the borders, discussions about vaccines, discussions about how it's being mandled, handled. Uh, the economy certainly is a concern and how to build that back. Uh, I think there's going to be discussions about anti-black racism and other forms of racism and initiatives to try to uh, end that and stamp that out. Um, and I think that you're also going to know that China will be on that call. Biden has a closer relationship with China than Trump did. Uh, not clear how that could affect the two Michaels. People are hoping maybe he might be able to help get them out. Will the U.S. drop the extradition request? Lots of questions around that. So certainly China will be uh, something that is discussed on that call and the two Canadian citizens being detained. Uh, last question, Mercedes. You brought up the vaccine. We certainly know how Doug Ford was uh, upset that uh, more action hadn't been taken, whether it's calling Pfizer or what have you. Uh, even made a point yesterday of saying, you know, across the border in, in Michigan, they're, they're, they have a Pfizer plan and is making this stuff. Can you spot us a million doses sort of thing? Uh, what about the vaccine? I mean, obviously, Biden's got his hands full over there with, with, with what's going on in over 400,000 deaths uh, in the United States. But is it likely we're going to see any vaccine? vaccine cross the border between the Canada and the U.S.? A great question. I mean, we're hearing he could invoke the Defense Production Act uh, to basically mandate any facility capable of making the vaccine to do so. Whether or not they would share it with Canada at this point uh, when they have such a crisis of their own would remain to be seen. That would also be something that would have to be negotiated with the federal government. Uh, the provinces can't really go, well, they can go and uh, procure the vaccine on their own, but it gets messy quickly. That's 
I think, more of a, a Doug Ford expressing his political frustration point um, than an actual viable way of going about it. Uh, but, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden are good friends, so he would certainly have a better chance of getting it than he would have perhaps with Trump. Uh, but that said, I'm, I'm not sure that the U.S. will be keen to be giving vaccine doses to anyone but their own citizens anytime soon. Did you sense a giant sigh of relief with the inauguration yesterday? I think for in general, yes. Um, that said, you know, there are going to be challenges ahead with the Biden administration, including the Buy America initiative. But it's certainly much easier for Justin Trudeau to get through to Joe Biden uh, and talk to him. And you don't worry that you're going to find out on Twitter that you're being tariffed um, than it was with Donald Trump. Mercedes Stevenson has been with us, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global National. Make sure you're watching Global National tonight. Mercedes, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, you too. Hey, breaking news here on 900 CHML. Governor General Julie Payette is resigning, according to sources who tell Global News that the decision comes on the heels of the completion of a high-profile review into allegations of a toxic workplace at Rideau Hall, which sources tell Global News painted a scathing portrait of the Queen's representative. Global News confirming the report first broken by the Globe and Mail this morning that the independent review of workplace abuse allegations against Payette had been completed and that it paints a damning picture of the Queen's representative. Sources tell Global News the results offered a stark choice to Payette, either step down or face removal. Rick Samprin, Global News. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Certainly schools in the greater Toronto Hamilton area uh, are going to be uh, remaining closed until uh, February 11th uh, with online learning. And, and I got two kids doing it here. We've uh, had lots of challenges. I uh, tried to work them out for the most part. Uh, things work pretty good. But, you know, there always is that 10 or 15 percent chance that you're going to lose something uh, right in the middle of it or someone walks in when you're doing something thing and um yeah it's um you know i I stuck my my head into my uh son's room this morning he goes dad i'm on a presentation (laughs) it's like okay i closed the door so uh you know you just gotta learn to uh respect everybody and and be aware of what's going on obviously you know even through we've been through this for 10 months we're all still kind of learning uh but there was an interesting article uh that was in the globe and mail and uh and you know I, i guess this is just sort of a sign of the times and and where we are Uh, and you can appreciate how difficult this must be for uh, the teachers and the students to try to make this all happen Uh, and again uh, lots of parents are trying to work and keep their kids in front of uh, the online learning and, and, and that's another challenge onto its own. I mean, the good thing for us is our kids are teenagers, so, uh, they kind of know the rules. But man, if you've got kids that are, that are under grade six or grade three or, or, or heaven forbid, uh, in kindergarten, that becomes incredibly difficult. Uh, and in an interesting article talking about teachers voicing their concerns over parents that are interfering on online classes. And that's more than just me going, oops, sorry, and opening the door when I'm not supposed to. Uh, I guess actually teachers interfere, or sorry, parents interfering uh, with the lesson. So that presents a whole other set of issues uh, for this uh, process, and you can imagine how frustrating this must be. Let's bring in Dr. Behan Farhadi, postdoctoral visitor at York University's Faculty of Education, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well enough. Thank you. 
I remember when we first started all of this, it was, you know, finding the space, finding the Internet connection, making sure everything was upright and working and all this sort of thing. I, I don't think at the beginning we thought about interference in any way, but how, how much of a problem has this become where once you bring the classroom into the house, all of a sudden the house goes into the classroom? I'm I'm an optimistic person. I'm hoping it isn't widespread, but it's um, widespread enough, at least in, in your Catholic district school board, where they've had to issue a, a um, communication to parents reminding them that they're not permitted under the Education Act to interfere with a class. I, th- I think that's because they were uh, proceeding with a hybrid model where students were um, being uh, kind of streamed into the face-to-face classroom, but I think it still stand, it still is applicable for for online learning um, entirely. So, can you give us some examples? What's happening here? So the, the yeah the source of that particular article I think was um, there are these forums of thousands of parents uh, who are in some way involved in remote learning and it's sometimes a space as I'm sure we all know where we vent, right? Social media. Um, mm. And it's, there has been as I, I mean, I'm, I'm observing these groups as well. And I've seen the, the tension that arises between understandably frustrated parents. Folks are anxious for all kinds of legitimate reasons. Um, but also, you know, not not going through the appropriate channels to address their issues. Some might be legitimate, some might be miscommunication. But the thing is, we never know when it just stays um, when it just lives online. Um, obviously, this and in, in, in I have found this fascinating, in, in, especially with uh, when I peered in on what my uh, daughter is doing at university. It's fascinating to get a glimpse into how they're doing this. And and really, you got to give teachers and everybody credit. It's come a long way from when this pandemic first started. Uh, that being said, it does now expose the classroom to the general public. Uh, and, and now the classroom is under the microscope. That can present a lot of problems, can't it? We're not yes. used to see, we're not used to having this, uh, this access. And it, it's across all sectors, right? And anyone working yeah. from home is managing these conversations. We're in a social moment right now where we don't have norms. We don't have established best guidelines. And this, the, you know, the conversation we're having right now is, is part of that, in, at least in, in education, but also work, um, working from home broadly. So um, what, is, what do you think the source of this is? Do you think it's, again, frustration with the parents? Do you think it's uh, uh, parents now newly exposed to this access um, and using that as a, as a time to critique the class or critique the teacher? It's, uh, I think we're establishing boundaries, right? So in one way, there's a, the common sense is that we're at home and it's our home, but a child is simultaneously in a space that is containing learners and students from all, um, <clears throat> all across their school board so, or in their class. And so there's this way where, as you know, I'm also a parent to two kids, I, I have to sit with my five-year-old and mm. listen to everything the teacher is saying. But that's because there's a parent-teacher partnership that's been communicated. And so the teacher knows that they actually need the parent to help the parent guide this five-year-old or four-year-old to cut something or to write something down. My student, my child in grade three, 
Um, he's really independent. I have never heard his class. Uh, he wears headphones, and I just leave him alone, mm-hmm. and he's he's fine. But but not all students are independent. So I think that there's like not just the boundary of okay, well, the online class is entirely private, and then your home is private, and these spaces have to be apart, which also get complicated by any any teacher that has a kind of forced video um, where you're seeing in this in the chat in the child's home so I, there's just all of these negotiation of boundaries right now that are just really messy and it's ultimately to me about respecting the uh, professional integrity of the teacher to do their job and the teacher communicating with a parent about what the expectations are and we're not always having those explicit conversations. So a lot of what's I, what I'm seeing is reactive because we're trying to figure this out as we go along. Is this a good thing? Can this help in some way? I mean, obviously you can't go and, and stick your nose into the, into your kid's classroom. There's, you, you can't do that. Um, but, but is, is it, is it, is there positive, positive things to come out of this simply because it's opening up the, the, the lines of communication between the parent and the teacher, the parent and even the student? I've had some profs say that, you know, uh, this has worked well for them because it's actually allowed them to uh, create even a, a stronger link between student and prof. I mean, is there something to learn here? I'm also teaching online at, at a university, so I have 375 students. Mm. I, I think, and, and I've taught, you know, in secondary, and they're really, they're really different. Uh, they're, when you are in elementary especially, you really need that face-to-face component. I, I yeah. think we're making it work in a pandemic, and what the the lessons that we take from here, I hope, are the integration of technology into our face-to-face classrooms. Uh, I, I think that we've collectively agreed upon the need for young our youngest uh, children to be in school. But there are also, um, you know, high school students that thrive in online spaces, and and I I suspect that virtual schools that are established will continue to some to some degree. But most students do better in a face-to-face environment, yeah, and yeah. teachers can deliver more content in a face-to-face environment. You mentioned, you know, technological difficulties. We, we are. I'm living in the middle of a, a well-connected city, and our internet goes down um, at least twice a day in the middle yeah. of something. So um, imagine a teacher trying to navigate this with, you know, at least two dozen students. Uh, I have noticed it has greatly changed since way back in, say, March or April when we were just trying to get through the school year. Uh, is this changing the way we do it? Obviously, we're going to learn some tremendous lessons here. Uh, and as most of the things through this pandemic, you're kind of learning as you go. You're, you're building the plane as you're flying. Yeah, that I think the benefit to me, the greatest benefit is when we have this sort of mass migration online uh, for teachers and students. And the barrier to that always happening was often the comfort level. Um, and we've just never really needed to. So the necessity yeah. to work and, and to work online is going to at least allow us to feel the comfort that might result in really interesting changes in instructional strategies in the classroom. Um, and the, the way that we deliver content, depending on the age and depending on the on the group of students you have. Uh, for instance, there, there's already been so much work done around flipped classrooms where students will watch a kind of like 10 minute video as part of their homework or something they do. And then they, they're able to spend that time in class with 
with collaborative group work um, that you can't do in an online space as well. So to me, that's that, those are the most interesting pieces. I'm, I'm really curious to see how the two worlds are going to blend. I, I'm mm. less interested in this kind of 100% online and 100% yeah. offline conversation. Yeah, it seems that that's, you know, there'll be obviously something hybrid good to come out of this. But everybody, I haven't found anybody that hasn't said the kids need to be in class. They need to be face to face. And, and you know, online learning, uh, part of that classroom is just allowing the kids to chatter amongst themselves to their own little square or their what have you. So they can have that communication with the kids in the class. Absolutely. You know, and it depends on the age as well. So I know that my... yeah. My kids can't, right? They're, they're too young to be able to hold a kind of right. conversation online. Although the teacher, um, at least my, you know, the older child is, is the teacher really does try to focus on discussion. Um, but I, I do wonder about the um, pressure on, on everybody right now to kind of have a status quo curriculum um, in a context, in a, in a space where it's really hard to deliver that full-fledged experience. Uh, learning experience and teaching experience. We've certainly talked about this throughout the whole 10 months of this uh, pandemic. And, you know, many have talked about, as I mentioned, the need for the kids to be in school for obvious reasons, whether it's social or academic. Uh, uh, some have said, you know, they're concerned that the kids are falling behind uh, because of, uh, of the pandemic and such. And yet I've had some say that, you know, the lesson here is not the math, is not the English, the lesson here is more societal and how to deal with with living through a global pandemic. Uh, is that the big lesson here that we may be missing? And that is, you know, being nimble, being ready, being open, being uh, being able to learn and change on the fly. Yeah, and being able to cope. I, I think yeah. we're really, we don't need to have any, uh, my, 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 uh, Concern has always been around the additional stress we're putting on families and children and to to have to take in this content yeah. when we're already having to cope um, with so much anxiety in our society. You know, I, I live in a, <clears throat> I have a relatively privileged uh, life and my children are in a happy home with lots of resources. But I still have to in the night, we're getting to the point where I just we're trying to manage their anxiety going to bed because yeah, yeah. they know the world out there isn't right. And um, it doesn't matter how much is right where you are. We know that there's um, a shift, a historic shift that's taking place that's impacting all of us. And especially once we're this far into it. I mean, you know, a few months, that's one thing. But once you get into 10 and 11 months, then obviously it starts to, to, to leave an impact. So is perhaps the lesson here less about the content and more about coping with that experience? Absolutely. And doing our best to strengthen that relationship that the teacher and students have in that classroom. Um, and of course, that, that, that relationship really depends on having that privacy um, and, and not expecting adults that children don't know to be to be observing. So I, I really do. Um, I think, again, for the majority of parents and teachers and students, I, I think that that's, that's those boundaries are respected. But the lesson is absolutely about about remembering that mental health and wellness is fundamentally about the relationships we have and not about math and science and, and reading and writing. 
So what tips, and let's go through parents, students, and teachers here for, for just a little sec here. Uh, what tips do you have, for example, let's start with parents who are trying to negotiate this. I, um, I, I think there's sometimes intimidation to reach out to the teacher, uh, so I would encourage parents to do that if they're concerned uh, about anything that's happening in the classroom, even if it's something that it's it just a matter of I don't know uh, what's going on and I just want to get an overview of what you all are doing this week. Um, and then also like checking in about about how your child is um, is performing and existing in that space as well, because it's hard to know what your child is really doing online, right? And how they're engaging. Mm. So I think like that, just having that, it's a moment where we have to be a little bit more vulnerable uh, in reaching out from both the parent perspective and the teachers um, to let, to, to have that communication and to also just like communicate that it's, you're here to support each other and we're here to, um, to maintain those relationships. Um, and, and sometimes we just kind of need those, that, those words of encouragement to, to help alleviate the anxiety because so much of this is just directing our anxiety in, a, in some place, any place mm. that will, will hold it. And what about teachers? You know, my wife, anecdotally, we have a story of uh, a coworker of my wife's who, who uh, their spouse is a teacher doing this, and then they have three kids under the age of nine. So you can imagine what that's like. Uh, what advice do you have for teachers? Um, be gracious with yourself. Uh, you don't have to cover all the content. Uh, there's even though there's the even though the curriculum expectations haven't changed. Uh, there's a lot that we can do in in less time that doesn't require us to hit all of that. Uh, I think it's really important to to remember that so many many teachers are parents as well as you said, and that these are not separate categories. Um, and and so I'm that children also don't need to be on the screen the entire time. So take the breaks as you need them. Um, mm. That's been something that I've been grappling with as well. Like we have we consistently had our kids online, but I'm starting to think about what it might mean to have them off that screen for maybe a day, yeah. um, a week, because I'm, I am concerned about the, about that um, really just lengthy, lengthy exposure. That's, you know, generally unhealthy. And is that your advice to students? Obviously giving advice to students is difficult because it's such a wide, a wide age rage, but for the kids that are having anxiety with, with this, what would you say? Um, you know, I, I say this to my son too, and I think this applies to any, to most grades is, is that you're going to get through this. Most students are going to get through this year, um, okay when it comes to the curriculum and, and not to focus so much on academic performance and to prioritize and pay attention to your body's responses to what's happening. And because you can't learn unless you're, feeling well when you're feeling yeah. unless your mental health is in a good place so we always i think this is even to adults and just collectively we always forget that to be able to to be ready to work whether that work is academic or that work is like our waged work we have to be in a good space so if you can take we have great weather right now um, generally speaking go outside for that walk uh, schedule it in your calendar uh, as a task to do because we rarely just 
feel like putting ourselves first and sometimes that's something we have to do strategically yeah you have to make sure you schedule that in and make it part of it otherwise why bother right uh dr behan farhadi has been with his postdoctoral visitor at york university's faculty of education giving us all some great advice on how to uh endure a global pandemic with kids at school doctor thank you so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well thank you you too You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, Joe Biden, the new president of the United States, he said when he got in he would kill uh, Keystone on the first day. That's exactly what he's done. Uh, Where does that leave the Canadian energy industry? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president, Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former MP and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Any surprises here for you? It's not that they didn't tell us it was coming. Well, I mean, look, their whole issue is pipelines and climate. Uh, that they would savage this particular pipeline is uh, is beyond comprehension. And I mean, look, it's not the first way to engage your friendliest neighbor um, by simply saying something that I thought was very petty and political. But beyond this, it was it was unfair, and I think it's probably going to wind up uh, being seen as illegal. Ultimately, you have a company that for ten years checked all the boxes, made sure that it, you know, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, got the support of every single state in which this pipeline, uh, you know, uh, connects. So, uh, and it's already 40, 45% built. It's already crossed the border. So it's already digging trenches in the United States. And so uh, there's no doubt that this is a political move by Biden. But what he doesn't understand and what his folks may not want to understand is that it's nice to have this discussion about fossil fuels versus green, but this pipeline is eminently necessary for the United States simply because, and it's a reality that I think many of your listeners are completely unaware of, the United States imports over 9 million barrels of oil a day from everywhere in the world. Almost 4 million of that, Scott, is from Canada. Uh, anybody who thinks that you can simply, simply wish away Canadian oil, especially since most of your big refineries, and I hear him saying 75 to 80%, of the refineries in the U.S. Gulf Coast, you know, every time a hurricane comes in there, it uh, price of fuel spikes. That's because they produce 50% of all the gasoline and diesel in the United States. Then you have the U.S. Midwest, so the you know refineries around Chicago, Indiana, Illinois, uh, and those in Ohio. You look at those uh, refineries. That's 80% of all the fuel produced. Almost every one of those refineries has reconfigured, spent billions of dollars accepting and looking forward to getting heavier slates of oil. Why? You can do more with it, and because the United States right now, although they've had this fracking re- uh, you know revolution, it produces great natural gas and light gasoline, but it can't do much for diesel, aviation fuel, and other high value added things like styrene, things like plastics, things like PPE. Those things are very hard to produce with light, tight shale U.S. oil. So, why is Canada important? Why is this decision so ridiculous? Well, it's simply because Saudi Arabia is no longer selling oil to the United States. Venezuela, which was always a, a pretty big, we were neck and neck with them in terms of selling oil, has simply dropped off the face of the earth. They no longer produce any oil. And so, so, so the United States really has only one reliable source, Canada. And of course, uh, this decision here means that uh, Americans are going to face the crunch, not just Canadians. But uh, I think Canadians can expect that this is going to be a very, very, very hard uh, several years because it's going to have a significant impact on the bottom line for a lot of Americans. They're completely unaware of it yet. But uh, I can tell you, when the American Petroleum Institute comes in and says this is a bad decision, take their word for it. Uh, this is going to hurt Americans and, of course, sideswipe Canadians in more ways than they can imagine. 
It seems like we've gone from one extreme to the other. Is that is this then dead? Is this it? Is this over? Many have talked about other options, another route, this, that, or the other. Is this dead? Is it over? Well, it may be over for now until the legals are resolved. But remember, uh, it's going to be now uh, channeled by train. Uh, so, you know, Mr. Biden, thinking and, and appeasing the Greens, is simply going to wind up uh, with a lot more trains on the road carrying dangerous levels of cargo because the Americans aren't going to turn overnight. And I think Americans have had a pretty good understanding of what the alternative renewables look like. They saw California for several weeks going through brownouts because they put far too much emphasis on renewables, which are not reliable. So what's the lesson here for Canada? Well, you have the prime minister who says it's the most important bilateral uh, issue between the two countries. You have a prime minister who stood up and made uh, uh, push back on the Trump administration when it came to aluminum and steel tariffs and fought back with tariffs of our own. I'm going to expect that tomorrow the prime minister, after the pleasantries and nice, uh, you know, niceties of saying it's a new day in the Great Reset, is going to stand up and say, all right, uh, I'm with Mr. Kenny and I'm with the uh, producing provinces. This oil sector, this oil and, and natural gas sector, is Canada's most valuable, most lucrative, uh, you know, uh, growth and revenue generator, job creator in the entire country. Uh, we're in the auto sector, you and I. We're in. I'm not from from Millville plant. I can tell you right now, oil and gas dwarfs that at least two, maybe even three to one. Last year alone, ninety billion. That's B, with a B. Billion dollars in economic activity was generated simply by selling our oil. So uh, it's not a gift house, a gift horse. Even the prime minister can look in the uh, in the mouth. The discussion with Mr. Biden will have to be pleasant, followed by some realities. And if that weren't enough, the same shenanigans by the same green groups of vandals out there who are destroying and deindustrializing or attempting to deindustrialize North America, much to China's uh, uh, you know uh, acceptance, uh, are also in the process of shutting down as you and I talked about uh, a few days ago, the Line 5 pipeline. We know the Line 3 end bridge approved a long time ago. That's also subject to, again, these uh, tit-for-tat attempts by Greens to derail any pipeline, especially if it's the Canadian pipeline. Uh, but we're in very serious trouble in this country, and we're going to have to start to either fish or cut bait. I hope that everybody in, in, in May is ready to draw, to walk to work because you're not going to have much oil, and you're not going to have uh, refined products, and there will be no Pearson Airport or Hamilton Airport, which gets a lot of its aviation fuel directly from Sarnia, which uh, is provided by the Line 5 Enbridge, Alberta oil pipeline that runs through Michigan. How does the prime minister walk this line? Because many, you and I have talked on uh, on many occasions how this is all. What wh- pick your pipeline? It's death by delay. Uh, yet the prime minister says, "Oh yeah, we want this. We want this." Uh, yet on the other, ha- uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, again doing everything to to to, to slow it down. Uh, Reuters had an article that said the PM. It's a blessing in disguise for him. Is it? it you know, much like the the Huawei five G. He doesn't have to make a decision. He just waits for industry to make it for him. Uh, well, I think maybe Reuters may want to consider the reality that uh, you know when you uh, look a gift horse in the mouth, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, how are you going to make revenues to pay for your debt? How are you going to pay for your social programs? How are you going to pay to support the federal and provincial uh, governments? Uh, they rely massively on this. You know, Scott, in the past 15 years, federal, provincial, municipal governments, and even these municipalities, including your own here in Hamilton, who have taken to you know, really dumping on natural gas, uh, gas plants, which provide backup for renewables, they've cashed in almost half a trillion dollars in revenues, complements of the oil and gas sector. 
you know, I, I can't think of a better way for ignorance to, to gore the golden goose than to do what we're doing right now. Canadians are going to have to get a little bit stronger a voice on this and remind the politicians, the woke politicians, that we need this industry to be viable, not just to get us out of this current crisis, but to make sure its long-term viability remains. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if we're not producing oil, Russia and Saudi Arabia are quite willing to backfill. And oh, by the way, did you hear this morning that Saudi Arabia has had to admit that it's been lying about its emissions? So while everybody thinks that Saudi oil, especially in Quebec, uh, is much cleaner, uh, guess again, it's dirtier. And uh, the fact is we've done a lot of remediation, a lot of new technologies in terms of our own energy. We produce the most sustainable, cleanest, and uh, clearly from, a, from an environmental point of view and certainly from a labor point of view. We do it in a way that uh, respects everyone's, the, re- the massive regulations that are energy in this country. So I think the Prime Minister is on the horn of a dilemma, uh, but much of it uh, of his own making. And uh, there's no more dithering. Uh, you either fish or cut bait. You haven't got uh, Donald Trump to kick around anymore. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, when do you plan to stand up for Canada's economic interests, as opposed to simply as your Minister of uh, Industry, uh, who I've worked with over the past, quite, quite surprised me yesterday, Mark Garneau, basically lied down and said, oh, it's the Americans, is up to them. It's time for someone to speak for Canada. His father would have done it. Why the hell won't he? So do you think the prime minister will fight this? Um, you know, again, as as he ended his speech the other day uh, talking about uh, Joe Biden, he even used his line, we're going to build back better. So do you think he, he honestly will fight for this pipeline? Well, how do you build back better when you haven't got anything to build with? I mean, the fact is that you're in a situation where you're... So you're saying he has no choice. He has to, well, he has to fight for this pipeline. I don't know how you can look at a massive $1.3 trillion debt, $400 plus billion that you've incurred just in the past 9 to 10 months, and then turn around and say, well, no problem, we can continue to borrow, uh, we can continue to increase the size of the, private, of the public sector, while at the same time having this massive bill that you're going to have to pay and address, whether it's generational or not, that's, that's moot. What really this comes down to is that without the energy sector and with imposing carbon taxes at precisely the wrong time and saying you're going to quadruple them, if not quintuple them, uh, you know, you're basically saying to people, I want to drive this country into the ground economically. You want to crush this nation. And he's got to start to recognize that uh, there has to be a pushback. This was a political decision by Mr. Biden. Mr. Trudeau is going to have to take a political decision and push back and say, we're getting our act together. We've done all these things. We are looking at a clean fuel standard, unfortunately. We are imposing punitive taxes. We've lost $150 billion in net investments in our energy sector. And we are cleaning that up. And by the way, long before it was trendy, we did switch from coal to natural gas. So, yeah, we're doing a lot worse in terms of punishing ourselves. It's about time you Americans recognize that this decision doesn't serve your interests. It certainly doesn't serve ours. And I think at the end of all of this, Perhaps the Prime Minister will show, finally, a little bit of spine and determination and show as much interest in protecting the integrity of the Canadian economy as he had for his uh, fanciful uh, magic and make-believe moved uh, to appeasing the climate hysterics that we've been governed by over the past four or five years that's ruining this nation. But Dan, how would how would President Biden sell this if he decides to reverse this decision and go through with this pipeline? I mean, considering he's done it on the first day, uh, as well as uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, um, how would he sell that? Uh, all of a sudden, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna go through with this pipeline. 
Change my mind. Paris is no problem for the United States. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the year 2005 is important. Before 2005, Canada did make those changes. And now it's saying it has to do 30% better than even when it made changes and converted from coal to natural gas, as an example. And we've been an energy leader in terms of diverse, clean energy. Just down the street from me, it's called the old Adam Beck. We've been doing it since, oh, I don't know, 1910. Uh, But the reality, I think, for most of us is that for the United States, they're going to have to walk this one back. Why? Because I don't think their advisors, political politics aside, recognize that the American people need Canadian oil, whether they like it or not. Uh, but I think the Biden administration will start to recognize the sting of the public when the energy prices start to rise through the roof. It's all fun to have this debate about uh, the characters uh, on both sides of the great divide in the United States. But when you start messing around with people's bottom line, yeah, in Canada, you can wiggle with it. You can spend a lot more money and get the country in debt. But the Americans, I can tell you, having done most of my interviews over the past five, six years in the U.S., uh, are extraordinarily sensitive to uh, arbitrary moves to drive up the price of energy, and uh, they're not on board. Uh, they also recognize, by the way, that they have regulations in place that have reduced the amount of fuel that the Americans are using, things like the corporate average fuel efficiency standards uh, on automobiles. You don't need to bludgeon or smack people over the head with a, uh, you know, with a tax axe in order to get them to move. But here in Canada... Canadians uh, seem to be oblivious to uh, the danger that lies ahead, not just with respect to the United States, but more importantly, with our own taxes, which have now been proven, by the way, uh, I think it's been out in the spades. Your carbon tax rebate would be a pittance compared to what you're going to have to pay directly and indirectly. But that's another issue. I think once Mr. Biden starts rolling these things out, there's going to be significant pushback. He may barely control Congress, and he certainly is president with a lot of power to veto and undo what Mr. Trump has done. But he cannot undo the American view uh, that when you mess with your energy sector, you're uh, you're taking on one heck of a giant that you perhaps have never had to bargain with in the past. So you're reasonably optimistic that this could go through. I think it has to go through because yeah. it is almost hmm. through. I mean, the idea of being on a board. And remember something. President Obama gave all sorts of excuses to everybody why he delayed it in the first place. 2010, 2011, it was proposed. It started to be built on the Canadian side got all the approvals. At the last minute before he exited as president, uh, he decided to kill it. It had nothing to do with the integrity or what was in that pipe, because that pipe is not the problem. It certainly had nothing to do with the reality that Americans need that oil. It's not going to be shipped everywhere around the world, as the president gave. He basically lied to the public, and he lied to American people, and he deceived everyone as to the, uh, the timing and why he was holding back on this. There was no excuse for holding back on it. So I think Americans are going to start to speak. And if, uh, you know, this is perhaps one way in which Mr. Biden can sort of look back and uh, understand a little bit of what he's done, get rid of the invective, recognize that he has constituencies to appease. But the biggest constituency is American energy security and independence. And you're not going to get that by shutting down what amounts to about 40 to 45 percent of all your oil needs. Imagine tomorrow if we had a prime minister with a spine who said, all right, you want to do this? 30 days notice we're cutting off your oil much the same way michigan's trying to do to ontario what if we uh, you know what if we reversed for a period of time and said we're going to start to throttle back because one way or another your green advocates that you are appeasing and that have an ear of your government are looking for the dis- complete ruination of this industry i think it would be a tactical uh, advantage for alberta for canada to say if you want to kill this industry uh, then let's not uh, disappoint you you have no more oil effective 30 days from now whether that would be a uh, you know, far-fetched or uh, able, we were able to do that under the trade agreement. I doubt it, but it's the same trade agreement I think that gives uh, Trans Canada Energy significant legal grounds in which to push back 
on uh, the stroke of the pen of the president, because there's a lot of things you can do politically, but there's some things you can't do legally. And I think this is one of them where uh, the Greens may have underestimated the power of law. They've used it for lawfare for all sorts of reasons in the past to block pipelines, especially in Canada. Well, now they're probably going to get uh, a taste of what it's like when it's on the other foot. I was listening to the Green Party leader the other day, and they were saying that uh, a couple of things that stood out for me. Uh, one was uh, China is going environmental. So. <laughs> and then the other one was that the demand for oil is down. You know, and I would suggest it's down because of a global pandemic. Uh, but how do you answer that? That, you know, the, the we don't need this thing. It's it, The demand for oil is down and China's going green. What's the problem? <laughs> you know what? I think it's really funny, uh, if not so serious. You have people who are supposed to be taken seriously telling people that kind of garbage. I'm sure the Chinese Communist Party is very happy to hear that. No, yeah. China plans to increase its emissions by 40% is given the permission to do that right up until 2030 and then start to reduce gradually until it gets to 2050. In other words, they can quadruple the amount of emissions, and they do plan to do that because coal plants are being built. I think two were actually put in place last week. Both were bigger than all the emissions of Ontario alone. So it doesn't take much to recognize that either the uh, uh, the Green Party is, is completely out to lunch uh, and, of course, more dangerously, doesn't understand that uh, the world is extremely concerned about the deception and the dishonesty of a country that uh, lied about uh, the pandemic, that lied about uh, uh, putting out uh, uh, you know, the need for uh, PPEs, uh, and of course is a country that's uh, treating Uyghurs. I mean, the American Congress made a point about saying uh, that what is happening here is nothing short of genocide uh, in their treatment of that country. But think of what they're doing in Hong Kong. Think of what they're doing in Mongolia. Think of the threats and the bullying that's going on around the world. If that's, what, if that's the star that the Green Party of Canada wants to attach itself to, then I think we may want to question in, in very, very serious terms, uh, the, uh, the the integrity of the uh, of a party that is willing to actually come out with nonsense they know to be true and can be easily found to be factually wrong. As for their other point, uh, saying there's less oil, it, it, duh, <laughs> hello, there's not. There, look at the businesses in their community. Yeah. I, I can see why she would lost the last election. Maybe she should have taken some time to look at the number of businesses that are boarded up in the riding in which she wanted to represent. The reality is that these folks are woefully out of touch with reality, and the more we listen to them the more dangerous it is to uh, maintain the social cohesion of this country. Uh, unfortunately, there's still liberals who are bending over backwards to try to placate and appease that party. I prefer to simply ignore them because I think at the end of the day, uh, their, their recipe is the ruination of this country, and I'm not prepared to stand up for it. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP with us, talking about the Keystone Pipeline and where it goes from here. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great afternoon to you and your listeners. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.